Would you grab your Bible and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? As you're turning there, I'll remind you last week we looked at chapters 8, 9, and we delved into the, a little bit of the latter half of chapter 10, which dealt with the issue of Christian liberties. What are our Christian liberties? What are the, the bounds and the rules which guide our Christian liberties? The reason that came up is because the Corinthian church had posed a question to Paul that was basically whether or not they had the right to eat meat that had been sold in the temple markets after it had been used for the purpose of offering sacrifices to pagan gods in the, in the, in the temple. So this ritual use Again, the leftover meat would have been sold in the markets. Can we eat it? Can we purchase it and eat it? Some of the Christians in the Corinthian church believed that it was okay to do so because they asserted pagan idols, in other words, false gods, are just that. They're false. They don't exist. They're not real. And so the meat used in these ceremonies, despite its use in those and the intent behind the use there, this meat was actually created by God and therefore could be received as God's good gift to humanity. There were others, though, in the church that believed that since idolatry is offensive to God, it is inherently the worship of a false god, this meat should not be bought and should not be eaten because it would signal participation in that evil from which they had been redeemed and saved out of. So there was some debate and confusion about that, and they asked Paul, what do you say? The gist of Paul's answer, of course, was that he sided with the former group, affirming their theological argument that, you're right, the idols don't exist. False gods are not real, and therefore, as Christians, we do have tremendous liberty to eat this meat. We can eat, we can drink, we can do all things to the glory of God, from whom and through whom all things exist. And if you look back at 1 Corinthians 10, 25 to 26, you should have that in front of you. Here's the summation of that argument. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So his, his theological argument sides with those who agreed that it was okay. However, the rest of what he says there presents his, his greatest concern, which was that the members of the church always exercise their freedoms, exercise those Christian liberties with the underlying motive of love. And so therefore, Paul says, while we have freedoms, and we're free to, to exercise those freedoms, one of the very best ways for us to apply that Christian liberty is to sometimes refrain from using them, to, 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 to not exercise our freedoms for the sake of those whose consciences are seared by those actions, for what he calls the weaker brother or sister. He says, I don't want them to stumble. And so verse 13 of chapter 8, he says it like this. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, 
lest I make my brother stumble. So I'm saying this to remind us where we've been. Probably not all of us were, were able to hear that, but it's, a, it's an important setup for where he's going here in chapter 10. Paul is, yes, affirming our freedoms in Christ. And as we said last week, we probably have more freedom than we realize. We can do all things for the glory of God, but we're to be guided by love, guided by the, 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 um, the, the, the desire to build one another up. So if we have weaker brothers and sisters, we should, we should refrain from our freedoms for their sake. And our passage today, which is the first half of chapter 10, the first 22 verses, Paul offers a warning to those of us who feel the freedom to employ our Christian liberties without violating our consciences. So he's just saying you can do that as long as you do it with love, but here's an additional warning. Even if it doesn't violate your conscience, here's the gist of what he's going to say. Be careful that your freedoms don't actually become a stumbling block, not just to others, not just to the weaker brother, but to you. Be careful that your freedoms don't become a stumbling block also to you, namely, by once again ensnaring you by that from which you have been set free already, the trap of idolatry. You say, we're, we're free to do this because we know idols don't exist. And yes, but be careful, you can actually be snap, snapped right back into idolatry by exercising that freedom if you're not aware of some important things. And that's what he wants us to know. The key verse is chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And that's how I've titled my message today as well. Beloved, flee from idolatry. So a question that we might ask is, well, how is it that, that spiritually sort of, sort of, quote, strong, right? The, not the spiritually weak, not the weaker brother, but the stronger brother or sister. How is it that the spiritually strong who seemingly have enough maturity to know that they are free in Christ from the power of idols, how can they so easily be sucked back into idolatry? And Paul offers us lessons here from biblical history to help us see that our hearts and minds are truly, as John Calvin so famously said, a perpetual forge or a perpetual factory of idols. Look at chapter 10, verse 1 through 5. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown. Another word there is they were laid low in the wilderness. What's his point? His point is this. Our participation in the covenant blessing of God is not experienced by mere proximity or activity. 
Your participation in the covenant blessings of God are not experienced by mere proximity or activity, but in our heart level dependence upon him. Dependence upon him. Another way we could say that is by faith, by trust, by hoping in him alone. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. For as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What Paul wants to do here is he wants us to see that all of God's salvation history, looking back through the the Old Testament All of that salvation history has this constant thread that runs throughout it. The story of God's dealing with his people is one of deliverance and sustenance on his part, followed by disbelief and disobedience on their part. And the pattern continues over and over. Deliverance, sustenance, disobedience, disbelief. And God's continual message to his people throughout that history is simply this. Look to me. Trust in me. Follow me. And we see over and over again that when his people sort of hit rock rock bottom in life, when their sin and their idolatry bottoms them out, they will often come to him and look to him and follow him. And God in his faithfulness delivers them yet again. But once they've been delivered from their immediate hardships, they invariably turn again and again and again to look to and trust in and follow other gods and other things. That's the pattern of salvation history. The remarkable thing about God is that in his forbearance and in his grace, he never, ever leaves his people. He never forsakes them. He delivers and sustains again and again and again. But but the idolatry that God's people flirt with is never without deep and serious consequences. We have a gracious God who delivers us over and over again, but the idolatry has consequences. Idolatry is always a dangerous and destructive dead end. God wants us to know that. Paul wants us to know that. And we should recognize this. We should recognize this. A simple look around at our own lives, our own hearts, the activities around us. I think even the events of this past week in our own country are just another sad evidence of this fact. Idolatry is a dangerous and destructive dead end. Paul's aim here is to show that this is not just the story of God's salvation history in the past. This is also the story in the present, Corinthians, and for a time until the Lord returns throughout the future. Now, us, church, 
today. The definition of idolatry is found in verse 6. Look back there. He says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That's, that's idolatry. It's the desiring of evil. It is evil. It is wicked. It is wrong. It is sinful to look to and trust in other gods or other things for our deliverance, for our sustenance, for our hope. There is, as Paul has reminded them here, one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's chapter 8, verse 6. And as the first and the second commandment say in the law of Moses, Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 5, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. To desire evil. The way that idolatry is expressed in our hearts, again here in verse 6, is through our desires. It's through our desires. I asked Danny to read to us earlier from 1 John chapter 2 because there we're told about the triad of desires. What John writes there is he talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life or the pride of possessions. We often think about the word lust as being sort of sexual in nature only, but the Bible uses the word lust to describe inordinate or sort of over-desires. That's what's meant there. Our over-desire through our eyes, our over-desire of the flesh, our over-desire in the pride of life and in our possessions. Idolatry happens when some desire of ours gets erected as this sort of uber-desire. It becomes the, 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 the thing that must, we must have because we think that it will become for us a source of hope. It'll become for us a source of our deliverance or our sustenance. And it can be anything that we erect as this kind of uber desire. It can be good things in and of themselves. But they become dangerous and evil desires when they take the place of God in our lives. And they take the place of God in our lives by serving as a functional master over our happiness. A functional master over our, our sense of well-being or our identity. There's two important things for us to have in mind as we keep reading the passage here. This warning from Paul, lest we miss his point. The first thing is that he's writing to the church. He's not saying these words to unbelievers. He's saying it to us as God's people. His immediate concern is not that the church is going to stop worshiping Christ and turn to some other God altogether, but that they will do what, in fact, most idolaters do, seek to place their trust in multiple gods at the same time. So it's not so much Christ or fill-in-the-blank. 
that I think he's most concerned about. It's more this attitude of Christ plus fill in the blank. That presents the danger. That's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing is this. Idolatry occurs in the mundane, ordinary experiences of everyday life. It's the, it's the regular stuff of life that so regularly turns into an idol. And so Paul here gives several examples of both of these concerns, right? God plus, Christ plus something else, and the mundane, ordinary things of life. He gives examples by looking at the history of Israel in the Old Testament, verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were, were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Several examples that he gives here. The first example is from Exodus chapter 32. It's the classic scene of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain. He's meeting with God. He's receiving the commandments and the people down at the base of the mountain because of their, their impatience decide to erect an idol so that they could worship it. And they make the golden calf. Why? Why did they do this? It wasn't so much that they were uh, wanting to abandon Yahweh, at least not in their own minds. In fact, when they made this golden calf, they, they, they proclaimed a feast to Yahweh. What, what was really going on, though, is that their desire was for a visible, material representation, representation of God that they could manage. They wanted God to be fashioned and controlled to their own liking. And that was the cultural norm for them, by the way. That's exactly what they did back when they were still in Egypt. So they could say here, sure, we'll have a feast to Yahweh. But we, we want him to be we want it to be visible to us in the form of this material statue. And so they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. That's a direct quote from the passage and Paul brings it up and again saying Look, these are normal everyday activities. Eating, drinking, rising up to play, normal activities, but their desires were twisted by their own vision for what God should do and what God should be like according to their own timetable and according to their own impulses. And it nearly destroyed them. The second example here is from Numbers 25. Paul mentions here sexual immorality. The sexual immorality, immorality that he first to here is that the Israelite men began to intermarry and have sex with pagan women. Now again, marriage and sex are regular, everyday activities. But because the Israelites' desires were inordinate, they, they overstepped the boundaries of God's gifts of marriage and sex to them 
They ran after non-Israelite spouses who drew their hearts away from God, drew their hearts into worship of these false pagan gods. And so they became yoked, as it says there in the text, enslaved, in other words, sinfully attached to the pagan god Baal. And as a result, it led to their destruction. As Paul highlights here, the Lord in his righteous judgment killed 24,000 of them in a single day. The third example comes from Numbers 21. Here the people of Israel again failed to trust in the providence and the provision of God by grumbling, by complaining about the provision that God had so faithfully, daily given them. For them, it was, quote, worthless food. They put Christ to the test, Paul says. In other words, they wanted Christ plus material goods like food and drink that were more in line with their own inordinate desires. And so God sent serpents into the camp to afflict them. Why did God do that? He was reminding them that they needed to trust in him. He brought them to a point of despair and rock bottom so that they would remember that they needed to look to him alone for their deliverance. He provided a way out which involved trusting in him again. And we'll come back to that concept because Paul does. But listen, why does Paul bring all this up? Why go through this this sort of recap, recounting of salvation history? I think the reason why is because of this. It, it, It can be relatively easy to look back on the failures of the Old Testament people of God and say, that would never happen to us. That would never happen to us. What does Paul say? Look at verse 11. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This couldn't happen to us, we might say. Paul says, no, you're not so different as you might think. You have this notion of Christian liberty that's informed by your theology. Idols aren't real. Idols don't exist. And so you freely eat meat in the temple, this meat that has been sacrificed to pagan idols, which again, in and of itself is okay, but you don't realize that in that ordinary, everyday activity, there is yet a temptation, a very real temptation to be sucked back into idolatry. How and why? This is so important. Please, please get this. If you don't pay attention to the motives that drive the surrounding culture and therefore can easily drive you too. Notice the sharp parallels between the experiences of God's people in the past and now, in the present, including the Corinthians and us today. He talks about them being baptized into Moses. He talks about them 
uh, being identified with him in covenant blessings of God. Look at, uh, at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? This this reminds us of what he was saying back in the first five verses. There was this participation that was happening by all of the people, just as we today participate in the body and blood of Christ through things like the taking of communion. You got to remember, though, our participation in the covenant blessings of God is not experienced by mere proximity or activity. It's in the heart level dependence upon Him. Faith, trust, and hope in Him alone. And note, when we eat and drink this spiritual food, we are partaking of Christ. We are participating in Him. There is a spiritual motive in other words, that drives this activity. It is a declaration of faith and trust when we eat and drink the communion table. In other words, the food and the drink in and of themselves, they're not the important part. It's the declaration of trust that's the important part. And so Paul's saying, look, similarly, with the pagan culture around us, it's not that they're just eating certain food, meat, in a certain place, the temple market. It's what they're declaring when they do it. It's what they're declaring when they do it about where they place their trust. Look back at verse uh, 19. We haven't looked at it yet, actually. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. What role did the temples play in daily life? We've talked about this a little bit, but I want to flesh this out again because I think it's, it's really important to help us apply what he's trying to say. So yes, you've got the temples that they're sort of like the, the center of activity in Corinth. They are, they are the centers of worship. They also, though, provide around them the center of, of all of its social interaction. I mean, these temple markets would have acted much like a, kind of like a restaurant. This is where you would go to eat meat. With, and you, this is where you'd go to gather with other people and, and have these social interactions. And there were these religious activities that were going on. The priests were in the temples and they were carrying out their priestly functions. And so you might participate in that with a real clear sense that you're doing this as a religious activity, but you didn't have to. And in fact, probably many people didn't. They would go to it more like this was just a restaurant where I'm meeting a business associate to discuss how we're going to do a deal. Or this is where I'm going to to sort of uh, mingle and hobnob with with the the elites in society. This is how I'm going to gain my status. Remember, status was such an important part of their identity as Corinthian people. 
And he didn't have to have a very religious mindset about that. This is just sort of regular everyday stuff. However, what Paul is saying is it's all centered around this pagan system. This pagan mindset, if you're aware of it or not, what's happening there is that people are gathering in these spaces to find their identity, to find their sustenance, to perhaps find places of hope and deliverance. This is where we build ourselves up as pagan people in this context. That's the center of it all. It's a system. So church, you can go freely in Christ and eat meat in the temple markets, that's fine. But be careful that as you do that, in the expression of that liberty, you're not stepping into the mindset of the system. I'm meeting with a business associate here too. I, I have the freedom in Christ to eat this meat with a clear conscience, but am I entering into a relationship, an opportunity, a temptation to step back into the system for my identity and hope? for my deliverance and sustenance. See, this is, how, this is what idolatry does. I am declaring trust in Christ plus the system. Paul says, look, you're free to engage in your career or your business opportunities but you're not free to look to and trust in that as a means for providing you with meaning, identity, or hope. You're free to engage in, in marriage and sex and, and starting a family, but you're not free to look to and trust in that as a means to providing you with meaning, identity, or hope. You're free to engage in, in, in political activity and involvement. But you're not free to look to and trust in it as a, a means to provide you with meaning, identity, and hope. You're free to pursue an education. But you're not free to look to and trust in it as a means to provide you with meaning, identity, and hope. You're free to to, to, to lay roots and to, and to build a life for yourself. You're free to, to live in this world, but you're not free to be of this world. Any form of regular daily life you can freely engage in, but you're not free to look to it for your meaning, identity, and hope. Idolatry lurks at the door when we carelessly participate in a system, in a spirit of the age, if you will, that is driven by a deadly and destructive worship that is either knowingly or not offered to demons. Because it's not offered to Christ. Verse 20, the latter half of the verse, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 
Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So how do we avoid this temptation? Look back at verse 13. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You're in this world, you're not of this world. There's a tremendous temptation when you're in the world to get sucked back to being like you're of the world. And that temptation is common. That's why Paul has gone through this look back through salvation history. He's like, there's this thread that goes from the beginning and it runs all the way through. That temptation is always there. It's always there. But God has given you a way of escape. There is, a, there is, a, uh, there is a, an endurance that can be had. It doesn't have to overtake you. What is the way of escape? Right before, he's just talked about this episode in the Old Testament where the people were grumbling, where they were tempted to sort of step back into the system, and God in his mercy and in his discipline sends serpents into the camp. Again, he reminds them, this is a deadly and destructive dead end. But he provides for them there a means of escape. What is that means of escape? It's the look of faith. Remember verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. But in Numbers chapter 21, verses 7 and 9, it says the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. This grumbling, this complaining, this stepping back into the system, we've sinned against the Lord. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Again, what's the, what's the lesson here for God? Trust me. Look to me. Paul says we have that same means of escape. How? John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Listen. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man, Jesus, be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Look to me. 
trust me, follow me, the constant thread, the constant message of God to his people throughout the ages who want to step their toes back into the system of the world. And this dead end, this destructiveness, this sin that will ruin us. God says, I'm going to put that on a pole that you would look here for your deliverance. You would look back to me. And it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ who goes up to a cross and is lifted up where our sins, our grumbling, our idolatries, our failures are all placed upon him. He bears that for us that we would simply just look to him in our confession of repentance and say, deliver us. How do you avoid the temptation, church? You look to Jesus. Be aware of the pull of the the system of this world. You are in it. You are not of it. Look to Christ. He is the means of escape. He is the way out that you may be able to endure the temptation. Where are you looking? Where are you trusting for your hope and deliverance? I want to give you an opportunity to just go before the Lord on your own terms. If God is revealing to you that you've, you've, you've said Christ plus something else, confess it to him. Look to him. And I'll pray for us in a moment as we come back to the table that God has given us to look to Christ. Take some time on your own. Father, as we, as we read what you have to say to us through your servant Paul this morning, we're humbled. Forgive us, Lord, for so easily bowing to the temptation of placing our hope in someone or something other than you. Forgive us, Lord, for the exercise of our Christian liberties without thought and concern that we might be so easily drawn back in to destructive things. Thank you that your son was lifted up for us. Even as we may bear the the serious consequences of our own idolatries, Lord, we, we can look to Jesus and know that you forgive your people again and again and again. And in Christ, you've forgiven us for all time. Make us a pure people. Help us not to grumble and complain. Help us not to believe for a minute that outside of you there's a, there's a better source of hope or deliverance or sustenance. Let us look to Jesus and find him to be all satisfying. We come to your table now to be reminded that we are 
partakers. We are participants in the body and blood of Christ. His death is our death. His blood shed is for our forgiveness. The covenant that we participate in is through His blood. Not because of just mere proximity or activity on our part, but because we depend on Him. So bless us, Lord, at this table. Unite us to Yourself and to one another in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.